So we need more VCs to invest in understanding female-dominated market needs. We also need more female VCs so that we are supporting those portfolio companies. We're giving them what they need to truly succeed so that we're not only seeing those pre-seed and seed rounds, but we're seeing bigger checks written and we're seeing those A rounds and B rounds and so on too. And now from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. Our guest today, Dr. Dana Kansi, knows all about double standards. And it is because of her time studying them as well as her time experiencing them. Dana's research on gender gaps in the startup and investment field has been published in leading academic journals and received many awards. And she's even done a TED Talk. Before her academic career, she was an investment banker, strategic consultant, and entrepreneur. And today, she's talked to me about how double standards can show up in sneaky ways and how we can stop them. Here's our conversation. Well, welcome, Diana. Thanks for joining me this morning. Thanks for having me. So um, you have a really interesting background. Uh, you were doing startup before you were an entrepreneur. Uh, maybe you can share with us your journey that takes you to where you are now. Okay, great question. It has been a journey. I would definitely call it that. But, you know, I'm really happy with everything I learned. And also my startup experiences were so helpful in really inspiring a lot of the research questions that I now tackle in uh, my daily life in academia. So just to take you back, um, my co-founders and I founded a mobile tech startup together in New York City. And so we built out what was a web and a mobile app platform of various social discovery apps that we ran for media clients and then also went uh, direct to uh, consumer with, mainly on iOS. And when I reflect back on that experience, I'm really proud of those experiences that we built together for our users. And um, I'm really proud of the fantastic developer and social media and editorial team that we built um, at that time as well. And um, in terms of what I can say I, I gleaned from that experience, I really did love the challenge of it. I was getting the chance to tackle all these new and difficult problems every day. I interacted with a ton of really smart and hungry people who wanted to do the same thing. And um, before that, I don't know if you you dug into my background more than that, but I was in investment banking and strategic consulting for just shy of about 10 years prior to starting, um, starting that startup. So it was def- definitely a career path switch when I went into startup land. And um, I... I didn't love the stress that came with either of those paths. So that that was one of the problems that I had with banking and consulting and uh, and my experiences in the in the startup universe. Um, in terms of the latter, I would say that the toughest thing was, you know, we were always having to watch our burn rate and make sure that we could do things like make payroll in a given month and then 
we were really in fundraising mode what felt like most of the time. So it was really <laughs> difficult to, I know you're laughing because you know, you know where I'm coming from. And so it's so difficult to have that, you know, that ambidexterity, right? Where you're oscillating between actually running the business and also, you know, running around, uh, doing past the hat rounds and making sure that you're pitching investors properly. And so, yeah, it was, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like also in life, there's always, you know, there's both sides, right? You have the best of time, but then hopefully not the worst, but you know, but the best, <laughs> oh, more on the, uh, on the heavier side. Uh, it's interesting that you mentioned the stress about constantly looking for funding, how, you know, all this experience that you have as investment banking and then a startup and now in academia, there's that piece that you also have to be constantly looking for funding, isn't it? It's almost like wherever you go, it seems like, you know, it follows people around. <laughs> it really is. And I mean, just for us, it was, it was tough because, you know, you're, you're trying to run the business and and you're focused on your daily active users and your monthly active users and and growing that out and um, really uh, working on the product itself and um, feature additions and things like that and keeping your users happy. But then you have to transition and put another hat on and sing and dance for your supper type of thing. Um, and so looking back on it, I mean, if I were to go ahead and do it again, I think I would want to be able to have that that business model in place where we were able to be self-sufficient earlier on. And I think um, that would have helped us be, you know, masters of our own destiny, so to speak, more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so what prompt you, I mean, you were saying you did not like the stress uh, in investment banking, which I can totally relate, <laughs> and the startup, and um, the going into academia, What in, and then specifically studying what you're studying. Yeah. So, I mean, it's so interesting because... Um, I always go, I'm so naive when I go into something and I'm always thinking, oh my gosh, the grass will be so much greener with this new area that I'm going into and there will be no stress. And that's definitely not true of academia, actually. I definitely learned that the hard way. There's just very different stressors. Um, but I don't, I'm really, really thankful that I'm not, you know, staying up at night thinking, oh my gosh, are we going to be able to make um, that payment on, um, you know, our, our healthcare insurance for everybody who we're employing and their families and everything like that. So it's not those types of stress stressors, fortunately. Um, so I always knew that I wanted to go back into academia at some point, but I was really lucky in, in certain ways in banking and consulting that I didn't have to go back to school to advance. And so my um, superiors would always talk to me during annual reviews and say, well, why do you keep talking about going back to academia and, um, and, and you know, going and getting another degree and things like that when you don't necessarily need this? And so um, for me, it was more that there were research questions that I had and I wanted to have the luxury to explore them and to write about them and to dictate, you know, what I got to do deep dive analysis on instead of that being dictated by the, the corporation that I worked for. 
And so that was really my driver. And I think um, by the time I turned, I was about to turn 35. So I was definitely on the the older end of, of things in terms of when people go and apply for a PhD program. Um, and so it really took a lot for me to, you know, I went and had to um, study and take some tests again. That was, I was out of <laughs> school for such a long time. I forgot some of this stuff. So I was running the company during the day and, you know, studying at night and then applying to, to schools. And I was really fortunate to get, um, to get the, the Columbia Business School um, PhD program offer. And so what drives you to specifically focus on the areas of organizational behavior? Why that over some other? Yeah. You could have done finance with your, your investment banking yes. experience. Yes. And actually, if you you were very psychic because when I applied to to Columbia, in if I if I look back in my um you have to have a, a statement about the research that you expect to conduct. And a lot of the the questions that I was asking dovetailed a lot with finance and were more macro oriented. Um, so coming into it, I was kind of labeled on the macro side of things and micro, aka organizational behavior side, um, was something that I had no idea that I was so interested in. And going back to um, my undergrad, I actually had not, and looking back on it, I feel so bad that I never, I really didn't get the chance to take those classes or I didn't give myself that that chance to take those classes as a uh, Wharton undergrad. I really took a different track. And during my first year of my PhD program at Columbia Business School, I had that introduction to organizational behavior with Professor Joel Brockner, and I got this exposure to all of these different behavioral theories, and I just fell in love with it. And so um, one of those theories was actually regulatory-focused theory that was originated by Columbia professor Tori Hickens, who would later become um, one of my co-authors. And I was so, so fortunate to have the chance to actually work with someone who has been such a superstar in that area for so many years. Mm -hmm. Um, So I got that exposure during that first year. And um, I started to find all these parallels between promotion and prevention focus and the way that investors were interacting with male versus female entrepreneurs and their discussions. And so all of this was kind of clicking and coming into place during that first year of my PhD towards the tail end, actually, when I was I was having these um, these little connections being made and then starting to pursue them and then that laid the groundwork for a lot of years. So I, I was in the program for for five years of of work on that. And so now you're in London. That's uh, Carl Woolwin. Um, so, which I think that's a good segue for me to ask. I mean, you mentioned about the study that you're doing, the regulatory and the promotion and the prevention. It's so funny, you know, those words, when you think about it from the healthcare, that's not exactly what, what you are referring to. Maybe you can tell us what that means when you say yeah, regulatory exactly. promotion and uh, prevention. Yeah, that's such a good um, good call because in so one of my twin sister actually has been in healthcare and pharma for her whole career, and she went back to school 
to Columbia actually to get her master's in public health. And I talked to her a lot about it. And she always is like, well, what does that term mean to you? Because we have very different terms when we use that. Yeah. So, um, well, to just take a step back, um, I'll tell you how promotion and prevention tie into some of these different experiences that I had. And then maybe we can go from there. So when when I was fundraising, my co-founder and I were super well-matched in the sense that we we both had uh, just just nearly 10 years of experience in financial services. We're both white. We both went to the same undergraduate university. We both had these similar titles. We were even very evenly matched in terms of height. And so the the only major observable difference um, is gender for, for us. And so I didn't think too much of it at that time. And now I know you know, from the from the neuroscientific research that it takes us these mere milliseconds to characterize someone on the basis of gender and make a host of assumptions that are going to guide our expectations and our interactions with that person thereafter. But I really was not cognizant of that at the time. I just noticed that my male co-founder was getting asked these different questions, questions that were typically directed towards a CEO, which I was actually. Mm -hmm. So he was getting asked to articulate this ideal vision for the future of the business and the growth strategy of the business. And I was on the hook to field these operational questions about feasibility and likelihood of simply breaking even that are typically directed towards COOs, which was actually his role at the time. So I always thought, hey, there's this mismatch, there's this misalignment, something is off here. But I chalked it up to idiosyncrasies on my part and my ability to articulate things in my verbal and nonverbal gestures that may have been inducing those questions. And um, maybe giving off a certain impression. And so I had left it at that. And so when I say that I tied it into um, promotion and prevention, what what my co-authors and I ultimately found was that investor questions differed along this dimension of gain versus loss framing according to the gender of the entrepreneur that they were addressing. So male entrepreneurs were more likely to be asked promotion-focused questions in the domain of gains. So those questions around hopes, accomplishments, and advancement needs. And then the female entrepreneurs were much more likely to be asked prevention-focused questions instead in the domain of losses around safety, responsibility, and security needs instead. That's really interesting. And do you see that uh, from your research, both, I mean, now there's a lot also female investors uh, in a, not as many as male investors, but do you, do you see that bias also um, uh, experienced from uh, the female investors? Yeah, you know, what's really interesting is that, um, well, it's interesting to, to people who we interact with who get surprised that we saw this play out in these uh, different framed questions. Um, we saw this played out by both female and male investors in the sample. Um, but when you look at decades and decades of the research on gender bias and bias in general, we know that um, bias that is driven by deeply rooted stereotypes tends to be widely shared. So we we tend to, 
you know, men and women hold deeply rooted stereotypes about men versus women and so on and so forth. So we are not actually, we were not actually very surprised at that. Um, but it is, it is definitely eye opening when we share this research with practitioners um, because then we all get to be in the same place together. We're all part of the solution. It is not, let's, you know, point our fingers at this person versus that person. It's that all of us are vulnerable to these biases and that we all need to um, have this structured approach to consistently framing our questions when we're spending time, especially with people in these situations where we're face-to-face or on Zoom video. And so we're subject to those visible characteristics. Mm-hmm. Especially when, you know, there's uh, the implicit bias. And I think uh, most people, I like to believe that intentions are good, but then that implicit bias is there, like you said, to the environment, to a lot of the stereotyping that people hear. As an investors, how can they be more you know, how can, what action can they take to reduce that implicit bias so that yeah, they, they would treat the men and, and the male and the female entrepreneurs more fair, fairly? That's a great question. And I have actually had such an overwhelmingly positive response that I really was not uh, expecting at all from the investment community, where I think a confluence of factors came together um, at that time when it, the the paper was published and it was getting traction. Um, that was also around the time that a lot of a lot of things were hitting the venture capital industry, and it was high time that investors um, started to rethink their best practices. Um, and so, I definitely have had the pleasure of working with. Um, angel investor associations and groups, as well as venture capital funds, um, not only for a series of training seminars, but to work hand in glove with them on reforming their best practices. And so when I talk to them, I look at this as a process, an ongoing process that starts with creating awareness uh, for these biases. And then I work through all of these key touch points in their investing process from the very mouth of that funnel. So how are you actually taking in data from the very beginning when you have people actually apply um, to get funding in various ways. You want to be able to standardize that process, standardize the information that you take in because any kind of differences and any kind of gaps are going to be filled in with our unfortunate assumptions. And so those assumptions will, you know, they'll favor certain people and not favor other people. So we want to not have any of these question marks in our mind and get clean data from everybody that's comparable. And so that comes from, you know, the the very first part of the process on, you know, on your website and in the email interactions that you have on through being explicit about, hey, this is what we need to see in the pitch deck so that you're all touching upon the same information. And then very much importantly into those investment committee discussions as well, 
as you know, a lot of my work is on that Q&A process that's part of the pitch. So saying, hey, we're not going to decide off the cuff what questions we're going to pose to this person versus that person. We're going to have a framework in place so that we know, hey, we need to make sure that when we leave here, we have answers to all of these questions. So at least we've posed consistent questions. And that... um, that potential candidate can take that ball and run with it or not, you know, Mm -hmm. but we know that we've put that out there in the same, we've solicited the same information from every candidate instead of saying, oh no, you know what? We focused on this the whole time. It's a shame. We only have a minute left. You know, Mm -hmm. it's really nice to have met you. And then all of a sudden you go back and you're like, wait, I, we know that this, that this guy's a serial entrepreneur, we're just going to assume she's not, but we didn't ask her to find out, you know, so you're, you're having, so you've got apples and oranges. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I think that definitely takes a lot of, uh, intentional, uh, and discipline because, you know, it's so easy to just go back, revert back to like what they're used to. Uh, how serious do you think the, the people that you work with are, you know, wanting to implement this and how successful are they in implementing it? I've seen such a variety of, you know, really a variety of um, where people are in in the process and where funds are in the process. And I've I've had the opportunity to communicate with funds across the world. And so you see a lot of variance geographically. You see a lot of variance by the investment thesis of the fund in terms of, hey, we do, you know, prioritize and take into consideration social impact. We are gender lens investors, whatever their particular investment thesis is, has definitely had some somewhat of an influence. And so I've had to meet people where they are on, on this journey um, and be respectful of, of where they are. Um, I think it's really, really important to not have a one and done. Okay, we've checked the box. We had that one hour training seminar. We're good to go. And it's, you know, because that can really do more harm than good, right? And so um, they may actually drop the ball afterwards. It's really about them then um, following through and saying, okay, we we are going to need to put pen to paper on a framework that we're going to use. This is something that's a working document. We can improve upon it over time, but here's a working document. Can we all decide that we are going to fill in the blanks of, you know, these um, high-level questions, for instance, and um, giving them the feeling that they do have freedom within a framework um, mm-hmm. to operate instead of that pushback that some people have, um, especially as investors, right? Investors want to, and 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 they are right in doing so, feel as though they're asking unique questions that are based on of, you know, industry-specific um, and technical knowledge and expertise that they've honed. And they don't just want this cookie cutter, okay, everybody's doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. So it's about dispelling that misconception that they don't have freedom um, and saying, you, you're just having to use the framework. You can have that freedom within the framework. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group 
a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping medtech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. So while this is happening in the investor side of things, I'm glad that they are more aware about all these things. It takes time to finally everybody, you know, reduce that, the implicit gender bias. As a female entrepreneur, how do you overcome this disadvantages while, you know, the world is still catching up? Yeah, you know, I I always first and foremost talk about the onus really being on the investor side to get their proverbial acts together and I I do in fact try to make that really really loud and clear. I will say that after I make that clear, I do see so much value in workshops for um entrepreneurs to be able to get the um the vocabulary and um and the experience role-playing what it's like to interact with investors and play around with the answers that they provide. And part of that, a, a small part of that is my contribution where I get to role-play with them and serve them up these prevention-focused questions and have them be able to touch upon promotion-focused aspects in their answers. And so I would say that the reason why that is actually beneficial is in part because they're getting that opportunity to refine their responses and that becomes muscle memory at some point um, after they're getting the feedback, after they get the chance to role play it in a, in a safe space. Um, they do feel very confident when they are interacting with investors out there on pitches. Um, they feel really comfortable touching upon these key data points that they know are going to be part of investors' decision-making processes. So that's been really helpful, I think. Um, I also definitely want to talk about the recent work I, I did in Science Advances with my um, co-authors. I don't know if you're going to get to that, but I would love to touch upon that too. Yes, please do. Okay, great. Yeah, so we, um, in that work that we we published, um, relatively recently. For, for us, everything is recent, even though it's 2020. But um, so we conducted these two complementary studies. And one was this observational study of funds raised by hundreds of comparable tech ventures that were led by female versus male founders catering to industries of this varying gender dominance. And we, we looked at gender dominance uh, variance based on this percentage of women's employment that we got from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. And so then the other was this experimental study where we went ahead and exposed these actual investors to detailed venture opportunity profiles where we manipulated founder gender and industry served to see what funding decisions they would make. And so the first thing that we confirmed was that female adventurers do, in fact, remain significantly disadvantaged in their effort to raise funding versus their male counterparts. But then we extended those results to explore these additional metrics besides funding amounts and found that female adventurers also received significantly lower valuations than the male-led ones 
and their female founders um, retained significantly less equity than male founders did. And those differences um, remain significant when we accounted for all of these model adjustments that could affect those outcomes. Um, But what's really important in terms of the contribution of that paper was that on all of those three different metrics of funding, uh, valuation, and equity, we found that the disparities became more pronounced depending on the industry that those ventures served. So female adventures were at a particular disadvantage when they were catering to male as opposed to female-dominated industries. So for instance, a female founder will experience significantly worse funding outcomes if she's at the helm of a fintech venture, for instance, like a crypto play, rather than a fashion tech one, like a wearables Mm -hmm. play. And then we found that the studies revealed industries served didn't affect funding-related outcomes for the male-led ones. Um, but I want to give a chance, get a chance to actually translate this a bit for your audience. Um, and so the findings can come to life for those listeners who um, are catering to healthcare. And so if we think about um, the healthcare industry, there's these pockets of healthcare that are definitely female dominated or even neutral in terms of the representation. Um, So the areas where women would be less likely to be penalized in terms of funding-related outcomes would be things like healthcare services, family office, and um, physician office management, hospice and palliative care, um, home health care, outpatient care, um, nursing care facilities, occupational therapy, mental health, Um, public health and social assistance, even like things like medical record archiving, um, nutritional supplements and vitamins. And then you've got like personal care, opgyne and and, uh, dermatology. But then the surgical specialties, um, biochemical manufacturing, things like genetic engineering, med device, electromedical equipment, Um, sports medicine and neuro specialties would be instead upwards of like 70 plus percent um, male dominated. And we'd expect to see female founding CEOs, unfortunately, struggle to Mm -hmm. raise funding at those attractive valuations for the comparable retained equity to their male peers there. That is um, starking. (laughs) In my question now, I mean, there's a lot of uh, (laughs) <laughs> good technology and companies that run by female founders in that particular space. What can they do to overcome that? I mean, yeah. because it's, it's not doing a service to the patient if you penalize female founders who could be really amazing in bringing that amazing technology. Exactly. I think what it comes down to, if we look back on on both of those sets of studies across those papers, is just how important it is to not um, create opportunities for these holes, right? Where you sit there as an investor and you don't ask questions like, okay, well, what are those industry affiliations? How were, What's your connection to that industry? And making sure that you ask the same industry-related questions of each and every candidate instead of filling in the blanks with your assumption that this person probably has no idea about fintech kind of thing. So behind the effect, we um, 
we found there to be this misperception that a female founding CEO was significantly less of a fit with her venture when catering to that male-dominated as opposed to female-dominated industries, while the investors didn't perceive there to be any cross-industry fit differences for the male-founding CEOs with their ventures. And so there's this perceived lack of fit a factor here that's mediating the effect, essentially, where it's helping to explain why these female but not the male-led ventures are receiving that lower amount of funding at lower valuations according to the industry served. Do you think there's also an aspect about, like, if you female in the male-dominated industry, the connection that C has was fewer compared to their male counterpart, but in the male's world, even though they're in the female-oriented industry, many of the investors are still male. So do you think that yep. is at play? Yeah, that's such a great point. And I think I'm really glad you brought that up because there's a really interesting additional layer to this whole situation. So let's just say a female founding CEO was able to raise that funding from that VC when they're bringing, let's just say, like a femtech offering to the market. But that's not where that relationship ends, right? That likely-to-be-male VC has to then work with the founding team to support that venture's growth and their development over time. And if what is likely to be a male-dominated VC team does not invest time and effort in understanding that femtech market and what it takes to effectively serve those patients and those end users, then the venture will essentially be starved of potential and hindered in their ability to scale. So we need more VCs to invest in understanding female-dominated market needs. We also need more female VCs so that we are supporting those portfolio companies. We're giving them what they need to truly succeed so that we're not only seeing those pre-seed and seed rounds, but we're seeing bigger checks written and we're seeing those A rounds and B rounds and so on too. Mm Wow, that's um, an eye-opening. <laughs> um, I'm glad that uh, is uh, you put it out there for people to be more aware of it. And um, I think, I think first step is always being you know aware about it and then do something about it. So I hope things are moving to the right direction. And I know we're uh, up on time. And I really want to thank you for sharing your insight with us. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And thanks for your thoughtful questions. Thanks. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.